Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Deutsche Grammophon's international podcast series. I'm Sarah Willis, and I just love podcasting with the Yellow Label's star-studded cast of musicians. I know I say all my guests on the Deutsche Grammophon podcast are fabulous and are musical legends, and they all are, of course. But when I told my friends who I was interviewing today, the reactions were quite different to the ones I usually get. No way! A legend! How come you get to talk to him? Get a selfie! I adore finding out more about different musical genres, and today is very special, as my guest is none other than the iconic Moby. Welcome and congratulations on your new album, Reprise, or is it Reprise? What do you say? Well, that is a good question. <laughs> In fact, I've been asking people what the correct pronunciation is. One friend of mine told me that Reprise actually pertains more to, you know, a recurring musical passage and reprise is more of a descriptive term or a noun for something non-musical. But keep in mind, I have no idea. I mean, maybe it's like aluminium versus aluminum. Uh, there might be a geographic aspect to it or, you know, it's up to the listener. Someone wants to call it reprise, call it reprise. If someone wants to call it reprise, by all means, call it reprise. Potato, potato, I think. Uh, I really love this album as a classical musician, one of these, I hope, not too stiff and boring classical musicians. I love all the different musical genres, but I love also to hear the difference between how how music sounds like your all your originals and then played on acoustic instruments. And actually, it's going back to your roots, isn't it? Because you started off playing guitar, piano. Well, I've had a really strange musical background. When I was very young, around eight years old, nine years old, I actually played classical guitar and I studied music theory. And I had a guitar teacher and a music teacher who wanted me to be a virtuoso. You know, they wanted me to be Andres Segovia. Well, maybe the waspy version of Andres Segovia. And then when I was 13, I discovered punk rock. And I decided instead of becoming Andre Segovia, I wanted to become The Clash or I wanted to be The Sex Pistols. And I broke my music teacher's poor heart because, you know, he really wanted me to be this complicated, accomplished, virtuoso musician. And instead, I just wanted to play punk rock songs. But having said that, the music theory and, you know, a childhood sort of steeped in classical music and acoustic music that's still very much a part of my DNA. So what brought you out of this? It's almost like you've described it almost monastic style of composing and recording because you would basically do everything more or less by yourself. You'd sing yourself, you'd play everything yourself. And this new album is such a huge collaboration. You have loads of different fantastic singers. You've got an orchestra, a real live flesh and blood orchestra. It's, it's a different way of working. Oh, it's a very different way of working. I mean, almost all of the music I've made and released has been made just by me alone in my studio with some equipment, you know, working late at night or working during the day, working all times of day, occasionally involving singers, but for the most part, really just me by myself. And by definition, reprise or reprise, we're still, the jury's still out on that. By definition, this album involved so many people. The string quartet, 
the percussionist, the drummer, the gospel choir, the orchestra in Hungary, the orchestrators, the conductor, the engineers, so many people, which is really just so phenomenally different to how I normally work. But ultimately, I mean, I love the process of making records, but ultimately the ultimate utility for music is its ability to deliver emotion. You know, it almost doesn't matter how a record is made, although I think the process is really interesting, but the ultimate criteria is really what is the emotional reaction of the person listening to the music. And even though so many of the people on this record are phenomenal musicians, there is still that wonderful human imperfection that you pretty much only get working with live musicians. But that's the wonderful thing about music, I think, is this tiny bit of imperfection, although, as you say, you really can't hear it. But is the jury out on which they prefer? I mean, you've only released two numbers as of today of the album. The people who've heard it, are there preferences? What do you prefer? Do you prefer the old electronic style or do you prefer this more acoustic version? Well, one thing I learned a long time ago, when I first started making records, I got asked to do a lot of remixes. And, you know, I remixed everybody from Brian Eno to the Beastie Boys to Britney Spears to Michael Jackson to David Bowie to Ozzy Osbourne. And the wonderful thing about a remix or a reversion is it doesn't compromise the original composition. And I'm sure that there's some people who might love the originals just because it's what they grew up with or what they're familiar with. I mean, I... With my lack of objectivity, I presumptuously think the new versions, insofar as I can say that my music has qualities of beauty or that I like it, I can say that I think the new versions are just as beautiful, if not more so, than the original versions. And um, if I'm being honest, I love these new versions a lot, not just because they're new, but there's you know, so many dynamics in the recording and so much eclecticism in the performers. So... I guess the <laughs> ultimately it's just hard for me to decide, but luckily we don't have to decide. You know, the, there's the original and there's the new version. And in a perfect world, people would fall in love with both. Well, as a classical musician, though, I must say I, I've listened to most of the tracks the way they were and the way they are now and even found some pitch differences like like in, in Porcelain, the orchestral version is a tone lower. And I just found that really interesting because it, it gives it a different sort of more broody sound in the, in the key that it's in. But things like using the bongos and, and the percussion in Go and stuff like that, it, it made it very exciting because I didn't really grow up with this with the dance music. But then listening to the acoustic instruments, I find myself concentrating more on that. And when I listen to the original versions, I just move with it. So I guess you're right. It depends on the individual listening. And I really love it. I love the way the strings soar up to those crescendos. But the electronic music is getting there, isn't it? They're, they're, their samples are pretty good. You know, this seems sort of like a subject I would do well to avoid. <laughs> you know, I, I am inclined to agree with you, but at the same time, I will be diplomatic and say I love a good sample, but nothing can compare to an actual musician. They even have Hollywood horn sounds, I know. You know, not just a French horn sound, but there's Hollywood horn sound, whatever that is. I mean, <laughs> I mean hmm, a Hollywood horn sound, maybe just something very big and gigantic. <laughs> oh, I can make that noise I, yeah. too. <laughs> I mean, 
I have to say, I'm not a horn player, obviously. Um, but when I was growing up, my great grandmother, she taught classical composition and she was a violin instructor. And she maintained that there is no more difficult instrument on the planet than the French horn. You know, she said for violinists, she said, if you're playing violin, you should play for about 15 years in private before anyone hears you play. And with French horn, she, I think she upped that to about 18 years or 20 years. She basically said it's so difficult that no one should listen to a French horn player or a French hornist. I don't know what the expression is until they've been playing for a really long time. And I mean, I got very lucky on this album on reprise that I got to work with so many amazing musicians. You know, I mean, I guess I'm perhaps a little more accustomed to working with equipment. You know, equipment tends to, <laughs> by definition, be a lot less human for, you know, the, the good and the bad that comes with things that are less human. But I have to say, I mean, all my experience working with the individual musicians, working with all the people in the different orchestras has been really, really special. Although sometimes I think working with an orchestra, as misbehaved as we are, that's definitely not working with less. We protest much louder than your electronic instruments if we don't like something. Well, I mean, apart from the fact that I love the way electronic instruments sound, I learned a valuable lesson when I used to play in punk rock bands a long time ago. I'd be waiting for the other musicians to show up. This was going back to high school. You know, I'd be in my basement waiting for the drummer, waiting for the bass player, waiting for the other guitarist, waiting for the vocalist. And the one thing I did realize, as much as I love playing with real musicians, the one thing I realized about electronic instruments is they don't necessarily make you wait. Like they're not out getting drunk. They're not having an argument in the driveway with their girlfriend or their <laughs> boyfriend. So in the debate or the argument of like, you know, real musicians versus electronic instruments, I will say the one area where electronic instruments win is by not having interpersonal drama and not having any obligations outside of simply just sitting in the studio waiting to play music. But absolutely, the benefits that you get working with real musicians can far outweigh the disadvantages of the fact that real musicians tend to actually be human with human foibles. But it reminds me, when I first agreed to do the performance with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, I actually felt the need to apologize to the classical musicians because my approach to writing score is very, very simple. And I guess the musicians probably weren't used to such simple arrangements. And did they did they like it? I actually called my friend, the principal horn of the LA Phil, and I said, uh, I said, do you remember this concert? He was like, oh, yeah, we remember that concert, a legend. So obviously they must have liked it. <laughs> well, if they didn't, they were polite. I mean, they played the parts flawlessly. Again, my approach to arranging is very simple, partially because if I'm being honest, that's what I'm capable of. But, you know, I also love simplicity. I love, you know, like, I mean, I love com complicated music is wonderful, but there's something to be said for just sort of pared down, really simple arrangements. 
And sometimes, though, I will write on a keyboard and I'll play these long, long notes and forget that humans might not actually want to play such long notes. Not horn players. <laughs> not horn players. They don't want to play long, long notes. They run out of air. Sometimes, though, we're called to make noises, you know, just like... You know, there was this whole piece by Helmut Lachemann. All we did was whisper and spit through the horn. We hardly had to play notes at all. So we're grateful even for simple arrangements if there's some notes to play in it. Okay, so maybe I should then stop apologizing for my very sort of like simple, I'm trying to think of other words for simple, um, folksy uh, style of arranging, you know, which is just tends to be, you know, the opposite of complicated, which I guess by definition, that is simple. But also I love the ability for simple arrangements to communicate emotion because sometimes, as we know, like complicated arrangements can honestly just be academic and off-putting. Well, like Stockhausen or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ex exactly. I try. <laughs> I try to, I try to. But as I was saying earlier, like music is supposed to communicate emotion. And sometimes complicated music is great at communicating emotion. And, and sometimes simple music is what's best. Simple arrangements, just sort of plaintive, beautiful, and austere. You know, I think of like Rafe von Williams. Sometimes he was sort of complicated and academic, but more often than not, he wrote very beautiful arrangements and compositions. You're speaking to a Brit. And you even know how to pronounce his name. I'm, I'm very impressed. Well, I was remonstrated with after seeing some Ray Finus, Fiennes, Finus movie, and I called him Ralph, and a British friend of mine said no. But going back to formerly Ralph von Williams, but as we've determined, Rafe von Williams, yeah, I guess there's, you know, a part of me knows that, like, my cool academic friends would never admit to liking him, but that, again, that, that approach to composition, to arrangement that really sort of reaches the audience almost where they are. I, I think it's totally cool because he did so much, so many innovative things. I mean, if you just listen to the lark ascending, you know, this simple, simple tune, and then you listen to his fourth symphony, which is like huge and it's like uh, stormy. And then he puts a choir in and uh, I, I think he's amazing. So I'm very impressed at that. And if you can write horn parts for your music like he did, then I'd like to come and play them, please. Do you have a pattern to composing? Like, you know, good old Bach or Beethoven, they'd have their official patterns and then they'd break away with them, you know? Like, do you have a pattern where you'd start slowly with one theme and then you'd move in with the beat and then you'd get the strings in there and build back down? Because that's sort of like dance music, whip them up and then calm them back down again. Well, I've realized, and maybe this is again, you know, keeping to the theme of my my love of simplicity and and this might be one of the only podcasts where i can say this and either completely embarrass myself or <laughs> or at least be a little bit understood is really a lot of my whether it's arranging composing writing is it's just based around this simple love for almost awe for intervals you know, the simple way in which a basic, like a minor third um, or a major third or a seventh or a, you know, just the way these intervals 
can move the air in such a way that we have these profound emotional reactions. And if I go back and listen to all of the music that I've made, there's just this recurring sort of, I don't know, meditation on or use of or love for the basic power of intervals. Here, here. We like what we like. And my ears love this, this, this idea. When you call it a reimagining, you know, so you, you, you reimagined your songs. Had you written them all down? Did you have to go back and get someone or did you write them all down? Because they were all in your head. You know, they were your, your things. But you had all these people involved. So you had to give them some sort of score. Yeah. I mean, the process was I wrote the basic arrangements. And luckily, you know, the libraries that I work with, the, the, the sample libraries I work with, conform to what musicians can actually play. So I wasn't creating anything that was, you know, higher or lower than what an actual cellist or French horn player or flautist or trombonist could actually play. Oh, very good. <laughs> That's great. We we really appreciate that. You had a wonderful orchestra, the, the Budapest Festival Orchestra. Yeah. If I'm being honest, and this is a good place to be honest, I didn't actually go to Hungary to record with the orchestra. About two weeks before the trip to Hungary, I realized the arrangements were done, the orchestration was done. So if I was to fly 13 hours to Budapest, I would just sit in the control room, you know, because I wasn't the conductor. I'm certainly not qualified to be a conductor. And as you know, it's really hard to like do last minute spontaneous changes to orchestral score. So I was going to fly to Hungary, sit in the control room and listen. And I had the wonderfully self-evident realization that I could stay home and I could listen from home. I didn't need to fly to Budapest just to listen to an orchestra as it sounded through two speakers in a control room. Are you going to do some more acoustic work? What, what are your plans after reprise, reprise? I hope so. You know, as I sort of keep saying, like, for me, the goal of music is communicating emotion. And I love the process. I love being in studios. I love working with orchestras. I love, you know, even just being by myself alone in the studio. But I hope to make a reprise too, because... You know, it's just so interesting revisiting these songs and trying to sort of figure out what are the melodic elements I want to refocus on? What are the emotional elements I want to refocus on? What are the compositional elements? You know, who can I round up to, you know, to re-sing these older songs? So the process is so satisfying. I really hope I get to make a reprise too. And not just saying this, but hopefully it will involve a lot of horns. Just wait till you try working with a horn quartet, okay? Next time I'm in LA, I'm bringing my friends from the LA Phil and we'll play you some of your pieces on a, on a horn quartet. <laughs> well, I don't know if I can afford musicians as accomplished as you yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah, we're expensive. But you can pay in beer usually. Horn players, they, they like their beer. I mean, so v vegan beer, of course. Is there such a thing? <laughs> One last question, Moby. It's so great to talk to you. I could talk to you for hours. How did it feel to see that little yellow label on an album of your music? Because you used to work in a record store, didn't you? 
Oh, well, I was a philosophy major at university and I dropped out a couple of times. And the first time I dropped out, I guess I was 19 years old and I needed a job. And so the owner of my local record store in Darien, Connecticut, gave me a job unpacking records. I also, this is when I started DJing. I was DJing in a dive bar, playing to five people a night. And I remember so clearly being, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on a Deutsche Grammophon podcast, but I remember so clearly being in the record store, unpacking the boxes of vinyl, because this was 1984, so vinyl was pretty much all we had. We had some cassettes. And when I would unpack the Deutsche Grammophon records, they felt so, I don't know, sophisticated. They just had a, a sort of a weight to them if not physical, then figurative. And I just felt like there was something so special about the Deutsche Grammophon records and the Deutsche Grammophon logo, you know, seeing that big, yellow, impressive logo. And I'm still just kind of stunned, A, that I got to work with an orchestra, but B, that I'm releasing an album that has that beautiful yellow Deutsche Grammophon logo on it. Well, thank you for this album. We are now going to take a, a screen Zoom selfie with your album. I hope that if that's okay with you. For my friends who went completely crazy when they said that I was interviewing you today, thank you for your time. Thank you for being for being on the Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast Series. It's fantastic. And next time I'm in LA, Little Pine, okay? We have a date. Well, I don't actually own Little Pine anymore. You don't? Oh, well, I'm still going to yeah. go there. The food's still good. Uh, but yeah, I, I gave up my ownership of it. <laughs> How's that? Well, I realize restaurants like airplanes are best run by people <laughs> who actually know what they're doing. Okay, well, we can still go there and see how they're doing. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I hope you'll, after all this pandemic is finished, that you'll be back in Berlin and we'll get a live acoustic. You can hire the Berlin Philharmonic. We're easy to hire. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, and by the way, if you enjoyed this podcast and want to stay up to date with future episodes or listen to some fabulous past episodes, do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts from. I'm Sarah Willis. Thanks for listening and see you next month on the Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast Series. Mm -hmm.